Hello and welcome. My name is Brent Weaver and this is the Digital Agency Show. The podcast that goes behind the scenes with today's top agencies and entrepreneurs. I am really glad you're here. And once again, it's time to transform your business mindset. Hello, 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 podcast listeners, digital agency owners. I am really excited you guys are spending another another week listening to our podcast and just want to thank you for tuning in once again. Uh, this week, we're talking to Brad Flowers, who's the co-founder of Bullhorn, and he co-founded this company in 2008. Brad says his degree in literature, while helps him with strategy and language during the branding process, doesn't serve him super well in his operational work, which is primarily informed through rugged real-world experience and his self-taught MBA, which we're going to be talking to him a little bit about uh, some of that rugged real-world experience today. Uh, Brad's also an avid cycler, and uh, he bikes for commuting, but also for competition, and he co-founded and currently serves on the board of a nonprofit bike shop called Broke Spoke, spreading the good word about cycling which is really, really cool. Welcome to the program, Brad. Hey, thanks, Brent. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. Give us a little bit of background on who you are and your agency, Bullhorn, what you guys are all about. Sure. Uh, So we're located in scenic Lexington, Kentucky. We started in 2008, which was the fall of 2008. You might remember there was a, a little economic downturn and my partner and I, we, we couldn't get jobs, so we started an agency. Is that a common thing to hear? <laughs> is, that um, a good, is that a good reason? I haven't heard it yet on, on the podcast, but hey, if, <laughs> if you can't get a job and you need to put some food on the table, I don't see uh, why not starting a business isn't a good uh, idea. So that's, right. uh, that's cool. That's cool. Well, that, that's that's sort of a joke. Um, so we we started in in two thousand and eight, uh, and we were both putting on civic events. I was doing bicycling related stuff, and he was doing music. And uh, we got together and put on a bicycle race in a warehouse. Had a ton of fun. And shortly after that, a community foundation here sent us to let's see, it was a conference called the Creative Cities Conference. It was in Detroit, and we heard folks talking about how they were. Uh, I think they were from kind of Rust Belt cities like uh, Pittsburgh and Detroit and Cleveland, maybe. And, and they were talking about how the, their specific thing is they were starting magazines and they they were talking about how they were really interested in telling a, an alternative narrative to what was predominantly out in the market about their cities. And, you know, being from Kentucky, there was something really resonant with us. You probably, when I say Kentucky, have a couple things in mind and probably none of those things has anything to do with design. Um, so we thought there was space to, to raise the design standards here locally. So 2008 recessions going on, was that a really hard moment for you personally? And this agency was created out of that frustration or dire straits, or was there uh, a bit of optimism and creativity or something that you've, you've always wanted to do this? Was that kind of where this came from? You know, I never really set out to be a, a business owner. I don't know that I'm exactly entrepreneurial. I've come to love it and appreciate it. Um, I was managing a bicycle shop and I really liked selling bikes, but I'd kind of gotten to the point where I was, there wasn't, there wasn't really anywhere else to go in the business. 
And so I quit that job and I was focusing on a home renovation here. I didn't really know what exactly I wanted to do. Initially, we thought we would be able to uh, do events and kind of sell event marketing. But over time, we kind of quickly became to realize that we didn't actually like doing that that much. Uh, and, and people didn't really want to pay us to do that. So it was a good lesson, a good initial lesson in how to, how to kind of strip things away and focus in your business. So these events were kind of your first actual clients. They were paying you money, but you guys realized very quickly you actually didn't even want to do that. Right. So we, we kind of said we were a full service marketing agency. And for example, there's, um, I can tell a quick, quick analogy. Um, there's an event here called the Beaux-Arts Ball and the University of Kentucky has the School of Design puts on this event every year and it's a fundraiser for several local nonprofits. And they called and they said, you know, we don't really have any idea what you guys do, but our bar vendor backed out. Do you guys do that? Um, and so no, we'd never done that, but, um, your, <laughs> wait, hold on. I, I'm your, their, their bar vendor backed out. So yeah. can you guys become our bartenders? Is that like, yeah, that's, okay. that's, that's the long and short of it. Uh, and so, you know, it was really interesting because it's, it, we said yes. And then we realized we really didn't have any idea what we were doing. So the, the event's interesting in that it only lasts about four hours. It's from about 10 o'clock to two in the morning or so. And it's kind of like a little like a rave, but it's three or 4,000 people come through. So it's an awful lot of people wanting an awful lot of drinks all at once. And so <laughs> we kind of had to figure out how to do it. And so like, we were thinking, okay, who sells a lot of drinks? We're like, well, Starbucks sells a ton of drinks. And so we kind of went and hung out and watched how they sold their drinks um, and so we said, okay, so we should have them pay it front, you know, order their thing and then move to the end and then give them the drink. And we'll have these people in the back making drinks. We had it all figured out. We, you know, rented tables and, uh, coordinated with someone to supply the beer, but we actually rented a U-Haul and kind of filled it full of booze and, um, you know, pulled up and, and did our thing at the end of the event. It's a little hard to picture, but you've kind of been there since about eight in the morning. So you've been there all day and now it's two in the morning. So you've been there like I don't know, 18 hours or something. You're exhausted. We're standing in the back of the U-Haul with headlamps counting singles and just counting, <laughs> counting, counting and counting and counting. Just ton there's money everywhere. Another thing to note, it's kind of a, a it's kind of a costume ball. And so, but it kind of like really scantily clad, like body paint and speedos sort of costume ball. Uh, and so, you know, people are pulling dollar bills from everywhere and your hands are just gray. I mean, when you hear people talk about filthy money, this was actually filthy money. I mean, your hands are. <laughs> so when we think about like kind of like best worst things that's going to happen in a business, that's a little bit of matter of perspective. But this was definitely one of the most significant things. And we're kind of standing back there thinking, you know, on one hand, we felt like we were rich. But on the other hand, we we're like, this sucks. We <laughs> have to figure something else out. This is not going to work. So was this the gig that you guys did that you realized that you wanted to shift more to branding or design? I'm, I'm waiting for the arc of like where crazy event like this reaches a branding agency. That was definitely the moment, but it took kind of a long time to be honest. That was, it took a series of kind of small decisions to get to, to get to branding agency. We, we did events after, you know, after that, this was, this was really early on. This was like spring 2009. And I was like, I, I never want to do this again. This is terrible. I don't feel good about it. I don't like it. 
so we took on, we had several nonprofit clients and like most people, you kind of start off friends and family. You just, you know, slowly saying, saying no to the wrong things and yes to the right things. And I think probably in contrast to a lot of the people who listen to this one big advantage we had is we didn't really do the things that we ended up selling. And so, you know, we weren't uh, developers who were starting uh, a web development company. We were people who were, we were kind of coordinating the thing and we thought we would hire freelancers. So we hired developers and we hired designers. Uh, we hired uh, photographers, videographers, et cetera. And so it, it kind of helped us. We didn't get really married to one specific thing and we were able to be pretty flexible and see what we ended up being good at. And what we found we were good at is, and what people hire us now for is, you know, we call ourselves a branding company, but we're becoming less and less comfortable with that term as that term becomes more and more ubiquitous. You know, people hire us to really help them talk about their brand, help develop the language systems around who they are, and then also do the design work that brings all of their materials on brand. And then, you know, oftentimes that leads towards brand extensions like um, all the printed stuff you need, t-shirts, websites, etc. You said that the term brand is becoming ubiquitous and you're trying to distance yourself from that. Why? You know, I don't know that we're trying to distance. I think we're trying to have clarity. One thing is I think brain, it's just a really confusing term. It's kind of like, it's kind of like culture. If you're sitting down in a room and you ask 10 people, you know, what is a brand or what is branding? Uh, you would get 10 very different answers in a similar way to like, if you had, what is culture? It's just a really slippery term when you start to think about it. You, you like with culture specifically, you start to think of maybe byproducts of culture, like beer in the fridge and ping pong or, you know, um, remote work or whatever. I think because the term is so confusing, there ends up being a lot of people in the marketplace who say they do that. And so you end up with, with advertising companies, PR companies, all of these different groups that really do different things that call themselves branding companies. And it just, it just makes the marketplace confusing. So I, I don't know that it, we really want to distance ourselves, but we're seeking clarity, I guess. Where you get those clients that think brand is just updating their logo or something. And that's, yeah, that's definitely one of the basic things. And even all the way to where they think branding is, we're going to, uh, update Facebook for them, you know, so it's, <laughs> there's a, it's a, there's a really wide, really wide range and it's, it's confusing and it's partly our fault and agencies like ours fault. And, and it's partly just due to the fact that it's just like a legitimately confusing term. Have you ever had a moment with a client around that conversation? Cause I, I totally agree with you. I think I've, I was at a cocktail party years ago and somebody uh, that did a lot of brand strategy asked that question. To everybody They said, well, what's branding to you? And they went around and everybody gave their answer. And it was, it was very enlightening of some of the ideas around brand. Have you ever had a really frustrating moment with a client where you were trying to communicate the bigger picture, bigger vision of what brand means and they just couldn't get past the color of their logo or the size of their logo? It happens. We de we have that conversation probably every time now just to make sure we want to make sure, uh, reiterate what we're going to do, why we're going to do it, how we're going to do it. Um, just to make sure that the work that we do meets people's expectations. 
Um, and the, the frustrating, the really frustrating things are when people look at you and you can kind of tell they're going blank and they're just nodding and saying, yeah, okay, yeah, we get it. And then in the end, never actually were listening. And, and really, <laughs> they really just want you to figure out, you know, their social media strategy or something. I, I, and that doesn't happen too often. Um, but it definitely can happen. How do you guys approach that strategy conversation and education with clients to make sure that you get them up to your level before you put a proposal or a number in front of them? Because I, I assume you guys aren't, you know, you're not trying to compete with 99 designs on just logo design. You guys are doing more full feature brand platform branding type stuff. So how do you, how do you get the client up to your level to be able to pitch high value brand services? One, I think naturally by doing better and better work, better clients seek you out. And so we're finding that the conversations are easier and less frequent and less frustrating the more we put out the sort of work that we want to do. So I think, you know, saying no to bad clients is probably the very hardest thing and the, and, but probably the most important thing. You said no to, no to bad clients. Let's talk about that a little bit more. What's an example of a bad client for you guys? You know, there are probably several industries or sorts of clients that we probably wouldn't wouldn't want to work with. Like one example, a couple of years ago, we had the phone ring and I I answered the phone. It was during one of our meetings and they were they were like, yeah, we um, I'm a representative. We're this ownership group and we're we do, you know, entertainment in the local local entertainment. And we're interested in you rebranding one of our venues. And I was like, oh, great. That sounds, that sounds really fun. I think we could do well. You know, let's talk further. What sort of, what sort of thing is it specifically? And they're like, well, you know, we just bought this, this specific strip club. And I was like, uh, a strip club. All right. Um, <laughs> Go on. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's one way of talking about entertainment. They were like, you know, but you know how it was, it had a bad rap and, you know, we're changing things and it's going to be really high class. We're going to have, you know, it's going to be more like cheerleaders. And, and I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm having this conversation right now. <laughs> um, and you know, the really hard part is these sorts of things come, you know, like at a time when money's really tight and you actually, you need the work. And so there's the temptation to take it. And then on the other hand, like for a design company, if you think about a strip club, I mean, it's kind of the, in some ways, the perfect client, you can really do anything. Uh, and so kind of creatively, there's this wide open playing field financially, you know, we, we were kind of, you're going to have a uh, pile of ones again is what you're talking about here. Basically (laughs) I'm going to end up in the back of a U-Haul again if we don't do this thing. Uh, And so, um, but you know, we think about how we, how we define who we are and ultimately it didn't end up being much of a discussion and, and the decision ended up not being hard, even though I kind of joke about it because we had gone through the process of thinking about who we are, what we stand for. And then at the end of the day, basically just like if, you know, if your mom calls and asks what you're working on, you kind of want to be able to tell her. So it didn't end up being that hard of a discussion, but that's, that's an example. I mean, that's kind of a really extreme example. I, th- I think one, one thing we've done, and I can't think of the name of the book right now, there was an agency somewhere in I can't think of even where they are, but they, they put out a book about business development and they talk about, you know, you're, you're not really trying to convince people, but you're more seeking, you're seeking cultural fits when you're pursuing clients. Um, and I think that's been a big help for us and a big shift when we, 
went from thinking like everyone who calls, we have to persuade them to go with us to thinking about this is going to be a long-term relationship. We're going to be really intimate with these people. Uh, are they actually a good fit? Do we, do we kind of like them? Do we trust them? Are we excited about what they're doing? And, uh, that, that's gone on an awful long ways. So have you put together any kind of, you know, ideal client list or, you know, something that allows you to judge these types of opportunities against your core culture so that you know when to say no, or do you just on a gut level say strip club? Nope. <laughs> that, in that case, that was how it went. But, um, we, we really, the, the stupid thing is, is that as a branding company who's over for several years, you know, we talk to people about what we're trying to do is articulate your core values. And when the work goes really well, it's going to be clear to the client that it's not bullhorn talking on your behalf, but it's, it's your core kind of shining through, whether it's language or a specific design or a piece of software or whatever. But then when it came to it, like, okay, so what are our core values? It took us like six years to get around to actually doing it, which is kind of crazy. But so not until about this time last year, we went through a process of going, trying to get it out of that gut instinct because, the, you know, the hard thing is as your organization grows and there are about uh, 13 of us now, it becomes harder to pin that down. Um, and so we felt like we were at the time where we needed to just write it out. And so we set out to have somewhere between three to five core values. And since we couldn't do that, we settled on three sets of two. <laughs> so <laughs> we have three pairs of two. <laughs> so I think we tech we technically have three core values. What are those? Uh, what are those core values? We think a lot about our work in terms of how to keep kind of hold hold two disparate ideas in tension. And so what we hope to do with our values is to articulate something that was true about us that that spoke to the the, t the kind of like the tension that we have to live in. And so f like for example, one of ours is empathy and honesty. To be successful at what we do, it's essential that you're empathetic. You know, you have to be able to understand the position of a client, what they're going through, where they're coming from. You know, you have to realize that while we do 20 or 30 rebrands a year, they do one probably in their career. And so it's, you know, it's a super stressful thing. And so in, then in addition, it kind of works reflexively internally to where we have to be empathetic with each other just to stay sane. And so if it's someone who's interfacing with a client, you have to be empathetic that that's a really creative job and that's a difficult job to do. And so if you're someone who's trying to push through a specific design idea, you know, you have to assume that that person is you have to be empathetic with that person that's trying to help you sell the idea. But the, the kicker there is I think empathy can become soft if it's unchecked. And so it has to be balanced with honesty. And so the reality is sometimes you have to have difficult conversations with people and say, look, we've agreed upon this specific strategy. We're showing you concepts that execute this strategy. And what you're suggesting is really off strategy. And, and in our opinion, uh, would be harmful for your business. Um, or, or sometimes it's, it's internal as well. So that's the way we structured ours. Empathy and honesty is one dissatisfaction and improvement is also one. And so like dissatisfaction, I think, um, if again, if unchecked kind of gets to kind of the internet troll sort of thing where you're sitting on your couch complaining about stuff. Uh, so dissatisfaction while essential. And I think 
it, you really get a palpable sense of it around here is everyone kind of is always wanting to do the next thing and do it a little bit better. It's oriented towards improvement. And I think, let's see, the last one is creativity and decisiveness. And so, you know, creativity is, is something we all engage with, whether it's strategy, whether it's management, um, or whether it's a piece of text or, uh, or, or a design element or a piece of code. Um, so across the board, creativity is essential. But then again, creativity is one of those things like most people know, some, oftentimes a creative person without discipline gets in this kind of infinite noodling uh, sort of space. And so, you know, the last line is the true enemy of creativity is indecision. So you have to be have to be decisive. So that's that's kind of how we articulated ours. And we we try to bring in quite a few interns and it, it helps us. We, we've formed it for that process. We've formulated questions to get at whether we think someone will be a cultural fit for each particular pair. And then also as people go through the process, we kind of hold them up to those standards. And so it helps us to determine it's like, look, we feel like you're bringing a lot of creativity to, to the table, but you're noodling on ideas after ideas. And so there's this decisiveness isn't here and we really want you to work on that. And so it kind of helps us have, I guess, helps us bring a little more objectivity when we do have to have hard conversations with folks. To this point, it's worked a little better internally than externally, but uh, we're, you know, we're working more and more towards to where we can, we can, we can use this as we seek, seek clients as well. So when you say internally versus externally, you guys are currently using this as a uh, kind of a measuring stick or a culture match thing with team members, but you're not necessarily running your prospects through a value check before you guys start working with them. Right. We're just, well, we're just on the front end of doing that and we're kind of trying it out. Last year was a growth year for us. We put a lot of time into, uh, into kind of the systems and, and things like this. We got a little bit off focus on some of our revenue targets. And so we, just to say, you know, why, this is our ideal. The honest part of this is that while it's our ideal, um, we're not always able to do it because the other half of it is that we have, uh, you know, 13 paychecks that go out every two weeks. Mm. You know, when you read books like Jim Collins, good, great, all that kind of stuff, they, you know, traction, they really push people to create core values to do exactly what you guys are talking about. Was that, the impetus behind you guys even deciding to do the work to create core values is that you thought as a 13 person company, you should have core values or, or were things kind of breaking down and this was a potential solution to fix them? Um, that's, it's kind of all of those. We, it was, it's something that I'd had in the back of my mind for about a year and a half. and, And it's something I wanted to do, but just hadn't had the space to do. And at the beginning of last year, I took some, some space away from my workload and to focus really more on internal stuff. And it, it kind of happened concurrently with two other events, which are essential. And I think everyone can learn from, uh, one is I became involved just like very luckily with a peer group of other business owners who happen to own businesses that are quite a bit larger than Bullhorn. Those folks were all actually using traction as well. And so they encouraged us to start, start down that process. And I guess that was the impetus of why we finally said, okay, we have to sit down and do this because 
you know, next month I'm going to go meet with these folks and I want to be able to show them, you know, what my scorecard looks like. The two big key things are that have been essential for us is to have a, have a group of peers. It seems so important. Uh, you know, I, I think back on the, on some of the hard decisions I've made and, you know, sleepless nights and sweating things out and, um, how much I wished I would have had this all along. And so as I, I couldn't encourage anyone who's listening more strongly that if you're, if you're in a position of, of owning a decision, owning a business or making decisions for a business, I'd, I'd strongly recommend seeking something out. So the peer group was one of them and is traction. The other thing, Attraction's the other. Okay, yeah, I lost my, lost my thread there. Tra- <laughs> so I was like, I either have both of them or I'm still waiting for the other one. That, that's good. Okay, I'm, okay. Sure. I'm, I'm trying to confuse everyone. <laughs> uh, so tra- attraction's the other thing. And that's been the thing that's been, I think, helpful most for us there is is really just the nuts and bolts. Like, I, I think people adapt different things. And the thing we've adapted that's been the most important to us is the 90-minute meeting, the weekly 90-minute meeting for our partners. Uh, over time, I've taken on a couple of additional partners here and just making sure we're all on the same page and using the same format and using some of the tools just to make sure that we can do like the simplest things that we couldn't always do, like uh, like predict revenue a couple of months ahead. You know, the, that sort of thing, distinguishing between leading and lagging indicators are things none of us came from a business background. And so employing a system like this has been really important to us just because it's pretty easy and pretty straightforward. We didn't, you didn't have to have a lot of jargony knowledge. Just out of curiosity, uh, we're also a traction business. Uh, what's on your, what's on your scorecard? What are some of the things you guys track on a weekly basis that gives you insight into, you know, hopefully not logging into your bank account and seeing a zero dollars as, as the lagging indicator, right? The <laughs> ultimate lagging indicator. We ran out of money. You know, what are, what are some of those things that you guys track that you've found really useful? Sure. There are four, four partners that meet, uh, every week and each of us are in charge of one of the, one of the sections. I can't remember exactly how they talk about it, but they talk about each business is basically comprised of these things. And so, uh, one of the partners is in charge of business development and marketing he reports on what's kind of for us leading indicators, which would be number of uh, number of proposals out, dollar amount of proposals, uh, proposal signed, dollar amount, and then we have kind of a point system where we get our we we kind of looked at what are the things that lead to a proposal, and so we have a point value that we get each week based on if going to events, uh, having a email with a client versus meeting with a client there versus meeting with a client here. So that's the sales and marketing stuff. We also have one of the other partners is in charge of the account account side, and he's in charge of reselling work to clients. He tracks proposals for resale work, revenue for resale work. He does kind of post-mortem interviews after the project is over. And then our creative director is in charge of the other, the other portion, which is actually the hardest thing for us, which is how to quantify the, the creative work that we sell. And so the way we're doing it currently is he reports on rounds of revisions because that's a, that's a real key indicator for how the, the project is going. If a project is going really well, then uh, we did a good job 
selling the work. We did a good job talking about strategy. We did a good job leading into the, the way we were thinking about their company and then actually selling the work. So that's one of the, indi- the indicators he looks for. And I would, I would be um, what's called the integrator uh, right now. And I'm, I'm kind of transitioning a little, but I still report on a lot of the integrator tasks. The financial stuff is my, is my category. And so I, I report on some of the lagging indicators. What's our quarterly revenue versus our goals? Uh, what's accounts receivable, which for us were cash basis accounting. So um, that's kind of a, that's actually a leading indicator for, for us for cash flow. Um, but for some folks, if you're, if you're accrual, that could be a lagging indicator, depending on how you keep track of it. You have the, the ultimate scoreboard as, as integrator or is the business profitable? Is it moving in the right direction? Exactly. Right. Yeah. What's, what's our profitability? What's our top line revenue? Those kind of the big ones. I ended up mostly recording on lagging indicators. So did you think when you started this business nine years ago, I feel like you guys have 13 people now. You're using traction. You have scorecards. You have an accountability chart. Kind of seems like you have the all grown up business now. I mean, did you guys think when you were sitting in the back of that, the U-Haul counting your ones up that it was going to turn into a really cool agency to work and uh, build together? Oh, man. I, you know, I think what I thought was... I had this idea that I would be sitting around writing really funny ad copy, so, you know, that, which to me now seems totally, uh, totally crazy because I, I don't do that at all. <laughs> but the, yeah, the interesting thing is, is that at each kind of evolution of the business, it's uh, it's really gratifying and really there are constantly new challenges or new frustrations kind of depending on your, what kind of attitude you're able to bring to it. We had aspirations and I think we have aspirations bigger than we are now. We couldn't have pictured how much hard work it would take. And I don't think we could have pictured exactly what we would need to do to get here. But that's part, that was partly us again. I mean, we went into it, the two people probably least qualified to do this in the world. And we kind of held on to a couple of core things. We were like, uh, we want to be nice. We think if you're nice, people will give you a chance. Once you get a chance, work hard. When you screw up, own it. Those were our big things, you know. And and we held to those. And you know, here we are. We're doing we're doing some really, in my opinion, uh, some good work, and you know, making a difference in some of the communities that we're working in. What's your vision of the future for Bullhorn? That's a great transition from what I just said. I think we're having an impact now, but I think. My vision for the future is I don't think we're able to really, we haven't been able to really fully realize our talent. The, my, my hope and aspiration and vision for the future is as we work with larger, larger clients and we're able to take on larger, more complex um, brand problems for clients that we're able to more, more fully realize kind of the vision of what we want to do and how, you know, we want to help. Uh, you know, we, we're big believers that the work we do actually changes organizations. We've seen it over and over and over again. There's no question that it does. And so we want to make sure that we can do more work for bigger and better organizations, you know, which is no slight on the companies that we're working for now because we have some great, great organizations that we've worked for. Uh, but we think with our skill set, we can, we can continue to can kind of level up. 
That's really cool. I, I love this quote that as you get successful, your problems don't go away. You just get better problems to work on. And it sounds like you guys have that mindset of ex- being excited about having bigger, more complex, more fun problems to work on and problems to solve for your clients. And I feel like if you have that or if people listening to this have that mindset, they will over a long enough timeline find some immense success. And I feel like you guys have already uh, achieved that and will undoubtedly achieve much more. Yeah, I hope so. That reminds me, there's a parallel quote. There's an American bike racer who's one of the first guys to race in Europe uh, named Greg Lamond. And someone was asking him about how he became such a strong climber, which is one of the things you have to do to, to win some of the, the road races. I can't, maybe it wasn't how he became. Anyway, his quote was something along the lines of, you know, that when you're, when you're climbing, it never gets easier. You, you just go faster. <laughs> so there's something about like, you, it doesn't, it never really gets easier. You just kind of, you gain momentum, you know, you get, you get kind of stamina and endurance for it. So I think, I think there's something nice in that, in that metaphor for, for what we're trying to do. Very cool. All right, let's, uh, let's jump into our lightning round before we let you go here. What's the best advice you've ever received? I think I'd have to go back to what I touched on earlier, which is become involved in a peer group. So as I think about it right now, I think that's the most significant thing to happen to us. It's uh, because I think most people don't care. You, You know, most of the people, you know, it's sort of like the people that go to a zoo, you know, they think the animals are interesting and, but they, you know, they don't really relate on the same, <laughs> the same level. You know, they think you're, you're kind of a curiosity. And so someone who's been in the zoo, I think is, uh, it's uh, so valuable. I, I don't know. I, I don't, I just don't think I can overstate that. Are, are you calling agency owners zoo animals? Am I, am I seeing the connection there? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Which when you start to expand it, I'm not sure who all the other like zoo employees are. So don't, (laughs) don't push that too far. (laughs) I think the analogy breaks pretty fast. Uh, We live across the street from the Denver zoo. So my, my, uh, we go there all the time. So now, now when I go there, I'm gonna be like, this is, uh, this is my people. (laughs) Right. You'll feel right at home. Which of your personal habits has contributed most to your success? I think bicycling is the biggest one. It's just like I've had my best ideas on a bicycle. I've gotten over some of my most exceedingly stressful times by just getting out and riding. Uh, you know, you, you can kind of put your brain on neutral and you end up processing interesting things. And I, I think it's different for everybody. You know, some person that might be swimming or uh, running or hiking or whatever. But I think just taking a chunk of time out to do something that kind of gets your, gets your body moving it's super important. I find it so interesting that it's really easy as an entrepreneur and being self-employed and kind of self-accountable to forget that you are kind of doing work when you unplug from work. That you, yeah. even just thinking about your business is actually you doing work. And so uh, taking time to run or ride a bike or for me, it, it is swimming. And whenever I'm having like a really big problem with work, I just say, man, I, I need to go swim and just chew on this for a while. Yeah. I, swimming is a great one because it's it's so like it, the the silence of it and the repetitive motion, like you, it kind of like immediately pushes you into that zone 
where like to me, other exercises takes a little bit longer for riding. You know, there's so many other inputs. It takes a while to get there. But yeah, I, I, I definitely hear you. And I think thinking too, just that general idea of taking time away from the laptop to think is so important. So that's that's really good good advice and experience share. Can you share uh, an internet resource, a tool like Evernote or something like that that you can uh, that you use that you think is important our listeners learn about? Um, you know, I'm I'm sort of a luddite. I, I'm you're, I'm sure every one of your listeners is is could show me several tools that could make my life better. Like I'd have to lean on more like boring tech. Like I think something that's changed the way I, the way I'm able to think about my business and probably the last couple of years is just using, utilizing audible to its fullest, like as boring, as boring as that is, but just like, you know, most of these books, you don't want to go back and read again. And so listening to them is, it's just like, it's like while you're walking or doing dishes or whatever, anytime you can, you can, you have blank space where you can be listening to something, I, I think it's just helped my my business savvy and acumen take a big step up in time. I didn't really have to carve out additional time to do it. Uh, so I, that's that's the biggest one I think for me. I think it's a great that's a great one and you know easy to overlook or have and not take advantage of. Some of our members of our mastermind community talk about staying in the stream. So just not necessarily trying to hold on to all the information and take notes and and be this diligent, you know, uh, you know, taking all the best practices from all these books and writing them down and creating guides and things like that. Just staying in the stream, just keeping that new perspectives and new uh, ways of thinking constantly coming through you. Uh, and also, I think for me at least, that helps me keep motivated that I'm hearing about other people's successes or failures and, and knowing that I can also do it. And if I'm feeling down, just diving into an audible or something like that often lifts me up and gets me motivated to, to make a big change or think about something differently. So that's a great recommendation. Yeah. And I think, I think podcasts work in the same way. So finding, finding podcasts like this, that, that add value to your life. I think it's, it's the same thing. Very cool. What book would you recommend as a Apparently, as a uh, a regular Audible listener, what what book would you recommend and why? I, I suspect business wise, most of us have all read similar books, so I'm not going to go down that path. Um, I actually have a degree in literature, so I'm going to head in that direction. One of I think one of the finest books out there is a book called Light in August by William Faulkner, and I recommend reading it for probably three reasons. One, it's it's challenging to read the narrative. The way he writes is, is really amazing and rich. And if you want to be a writer, you know, reading someone like that, uh, even if you just read short sections before you sit down to write about your business can really do wonders. So I think just from an aesthetic standpoint, it's kind of startling. You know, currently there are big weighty issues at play in, in the media. And I think the way he, he makes you think about kind of how you construct your identity and how race works uh, in America, uh, I've, you know, I think he deals with some really heavy, serious issues. And so I think that's valuable. And I said three, but I have no idea what the third one was. <laughs> so I'm going to stick with two. <laughs> well, Those are two good reasons. That's two good reasons. And uh, I read As I Lay Dying, uh, which is is one of his books in college. And I, I'm just going to second your first one that it's hard to read, man. It's hard to get through some Faulkner. So uh, that's uh, it's good to know that maybe there's uh, that it's worth it, obviously, to get a new perspective and something that makes you potentially think differently 
especially from somebody who was, um, you know, born in a completely different century, different time. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's like anything it's, you know, like it's, whether it's you're designing something or you're going to run a marathon or whatever, you know, you kind of, it's, if you want to be able to do it, you have to, you know, kind of flex that muscle, so to speak. And I think reading is the same, whether you're trying to read something difficult like Shakespeare or, um, you know, something technical about your field, you just, you have to, uh, you just have to put in the time and, uh, you know, I think immersing yourself in language I'm always for, I think it's great. Very cool. Well, Brad, this has been a true pleasure hanging out with you, getting to hear about your story, some of your tumultuous early days and some of those hard decisions and hard moments that you've had to make over the last nine years and, and, uh, really appreciate you sharing your insight and advice with our listeners here at the, the digital agency show. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to do it. Is there any, uh, anything that in terms of our audience being able to find out more about you or where they can check out anything? Uh, yeah, you can check out our website, bullhorncreative.com. Our blog's really active. Also the case studies I think are, are interesting and kind of quickly summarize our work. Uh, I'm on Twitter at bullhornbrad. Although I'm not terribly active, I do look at it from time to time. Uh, so you can also reach me there. So if, if somebody wants to eventually get a hold of you, they can use Twitter. But if they want to get a hold of you now, check out bullhorn.com. Uh, uh, bullhorncreative.com, I'm sorry. Bullhorn Creative. Yeah, if you want the 10-minute uh, you know, the, the reply or the you know, next-week reply. It just <laughs> depends on what you want. Gotcha. Very cool. Well, Brad, thanks again. And uh, you're welcome anytime on the Digital Agency Show and uh, looking forward to connecting with you again in the future. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. See ya.